some serious issues going on in their life. And I don't want to pass them by. And so I just want to go before the Lord. And, and you come with me just to meet their needs. It's going to be very general. Father, we just come before you. We know that you see your body. You see the ailments. You see the, the hardships, the, the diseases and the, the sicknesses that are there. Father, that you would reach down from heaven and just touch them, touch their bodies. Make them well. Make it a speedy recovery, Lord, that you would receive the glory and the honor for it in this body. We give you the praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. All right. Now, um, do you guys do testimony time? Anybody ever do that? It's, it's an old, I'm old school, you can tell, where someone gives a couple of lines about what's going on that's good in their life. Do y'all ever do that here? Hey, no, we, don't do, we don't talk to each other in this church. No. <laughs> Sometimes someone will stand up and say, I just want to give God the glory because X, Y, and Z, you know. All right, maybe we'll try that next time. I want next time, you know, just kind of etch it in your brain or something that's good in your, that's been going on in your life. Because, you see, your good testimony really does minister to other people. Not that you get up and preach because some people, you know, they get up there and they'll just start going after it for 15 minutes and the pastor has to cut them off, you know. But I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, just a few lines, you know, what God is doing in your life. And if you need encouragement, yes, ma'am. Oh, your brother survived at Ori. Good for that. What does that mean to you? Does it mean that with, with God all things are possible and nothing's impossible? That's what it means. All right. There's a testimony right there. I'm excited just for that. All right. What a week. Now, I kind of threw out my back a little bit, so it's going to look kind of weird standing up here. Just, I, get, I thought I was 25, and I'm not. <laughs> And I did some things that, you know, you, you shouldn't do at my age. Not that I'm an old guy. I'm only 58, but I'm just saying that I've got this little back issue today. So I usually run the pulpit, you know, and run around, but I don't do that today. So, all right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. No, I, I don't need the seat. Thank you, though. That's very nice. He's, he's offering me the stool back there. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to tackle a very challenging subject to apprehend in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at two verses of scripture there today. Um, today's message is all about the office of pastor. The office of pastor. The title of my sermon is, Is There Room for a Pastor? Now, sometimes we think, well, you know, we can either do with one or not. We can, or we can just kind of rearrange it and we can get people to preach. Well, I'm telling you today that a pastor is so needed in the body of Christ. And, I, and guess what? We are short pastors everywhere, everywhere. I was telling you, I think I was telling you guys of a church I knew in Cincinnati. Uh, maybe I didn't. The pastor that is there is in his 90s, and he wants to retire, but he can't because there's no one to take his place. Uh, and that is the way it is in many different places. So we're talking about the office of pastor. Do you have Ephesians 4, 11, and 12? Say amen. It might be up here. Okay, it's up here, see? Now, here we go. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church, and I just narrowed down these few verses. There is a larger context that's important, but I just want to hit these verses here. And he, that's Christ himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith. End quote. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
he gives us a huge theological deposit right here in this passage. Now, he names off five ministry gifts given to the body. Please don't misunderstand. These are not gifted people necessarily. Paul is saying, I'm giving you five gifts. Or Christ is giving you five gifts to the body. In other words, the evangelist, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, those are the gifts given to the local body. That's the context that it needs to be understood in. So, and I realize in our Christian culture today, we kind of cherry pick from this list of what we will take and what we won't. When we might take the evangelist, that's acceptable. We'll take the pastor, that's acceptable. The teacher, the prophet and the evangel or the prophet and the apostle, and we'll leave those out. That's a sermon for another day. But you have to know that we here at Open Door, or excuse me, Open Door, One Hope, those are right, interchangeable, aren't they? <laughs> I've been practicing. Don't say Open Door, say One Hope. <laughs> here at this church, we are praying at some point potentially for a pastor to come in. And so what we're going to need is for God to give us one, right? And so we have to understand that the pastor himself, when he arrives, will be the gift from Christ to you and I. So a pastor is one who is given by God as a gift and received by faith as a gift, who comes not necessarily by his own skill or his politicking for position, not necessarily by a well-crafted uh, a resume, though that kind of helps. Not necessarily by who he knows or where he went to seminary, though that helps as well. All of those things, they may play a part. And the church is seeking a pastor to hire him, and certainly we want a qualified pastor. But even with all of those things, there is no guarantee that the person that will stand up here will be a pastor. Unless we understand what a pastor really is. And that's what we're, we're headed in that direction today. Now, typically, you don't hear sermons from a pastor about a pastor. When was the last time you heard a pastor preach on his job? See, no one does that. No one does that. But I'm an interim, and so I, I think it's going to be all right for us. We need to study this and understand what a pastor really is. Now, there are several divisive views. I, I, should say, I shouldn't say divisive. Let's just say just some different views of what it means to be a pastor and what the pastor's role should be in the church. And so today I want to explore what that role is, its biblical limitations, to explore the potential of what can happen here at One Hope if you get the right pastor. I think the potential is off the charts in terms of, excuse me, of direction and purpose. So we, need, we know that every ship needs a rudder in order to navigate. We just got to have a rudder to be effective. Without a divinely sent rudder, we can only tread water as a church. And there are a lot of churches treading water just waiting to, for God to send them someone. So we begin with prayers like, God, send us. That's the beginning prayer right there. God, send us. Make it be your choice and not ours. Those kinds of prayers is what, is what we need here in this body. So I, I've been a student of, of the Protestant Reformation for a while. I like to study different things in church history. For me, it's interesting. Most people think, oh, boy, don't, please don't tell us anything about church history. You did that last time. 
Well, there are some interesting things to, to understand about church history. There is one thing that the Protestant Reformation was not prepared to deal with. And that's to find a consensus from Scripture about the office of pastor. When you look through the different writings of various people in the Reformation, they were just all over the map. There wasn't a, a, a consensus of what the role is supposed to be. It's kind of like it was off their theological radar screen. And even well past the Reformation, people are not, were not all that interested in what the role of a pastor is in the local body. Author and pastor Bob Yandian of Grace Fellowship out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, he points out that there are three basic forms of church government that came from the Protestant Reformation, still practiced today and have many inroads in practically every area of Christianity. And out of those three, all of them, in, in some way, has redefined what a pastor should be about, his role in the local church. So our Ephesians passage told us that this is a gift from God. And so I'm saying that it must be received as a gift by faith first, before we look at credentials, before we look at resume, before we look at anything else, that pastor must be received by the leaders, and by the congregation, by faith, first. So the first form, I was going to give you three here, the first and the oldest form of church government is the Episcopalian form of government. Everybody heard of the Episcopalian church, Episcopalian government? From the Greek word episkopos, it's where we get the word bishop. It's out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the bishop has the rule. The bishop is the overseer. He oversees the body. So in the Roman Catholic Church, I was raised Catholic, by the way. You, you hear me mention Catholic a lot. Well, I was raised Catholic. Um, in the Roman Catholic Church, there are many layers of bishops, all who usurp oversight over the local priest who sets the agenda for the church. The Episcopalian Church is the Episcopalian version of the Roman Catholic Church, in my view. And the pastor is not called a pastor. He's called a bishop. And each of them have bishops over them. There's a hierarchy of bishops over them who steer the direction of the church. In the early days of the Reformation, leaders wanted to take the authority out of the hands of the local bishop to further sever the Catholic form of government. It was just another way of saying, we're not doing it the Catholic way, so we're going to start moving in different directions. But, but here's the part I want you to understand, and it affects us. They began to do this, especially if the local bishop was found in a moral or ethical failure. And that led to another form of government called Presbyterian form of government, taken out of Titus chapter 1. Presbuteros is the Greek word, and it means elder-led. The elders take the steering wheel and lead the church. And typically, within the ranking of elders, they vote democratically over the direction of the church. Now, why do they do that? Well, in many cases, it's because in the Episcopalian form, the leadership was failing. And so now the, the elders have the rule. But again, elders, in some cases, were also found with moral and ethical failures and discretions uh, resulting in another shift. And so this shift went from elder-led to the third, which is congregational-led forms of government. There were the congregation, so they're supposedly fed up with the elder-led and the bishop-led. 
they take the rule and by a democratic vote. It's interesting because in this congregational form of, of government, it became most popular during the formation of our country when democracy was just, you know, off the charts. Everybody was into, okay, let's have a vote, let's have a vote. And that line of thinking went into the church, and you found that the church was now being steered by the local body. So in a sense, the congregation collectively became the pastor in the direction of the church. In all of these early denominational governments, the pastor's role was either diminished or redefined, especially in cases where moral and ethical failure occurred. In other words, the tendency in the church was to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And the baby was the role and the function of the local pastor, as understood from the scriptures. So if the pastor had a sin problem, that was a good reason to take the oversight from him and to never give it back, basically, or to never give back the next pastor's role. It's been shifted and changed. So Pastor Yandian suggests that in these cases, it really wasn't so much about the moral failures of the bishops or the moral failures about the pastors or the elders or the moral failure about anybody in the leadership. He suggested it wasn't necessarily about those things. It was more about the fleshly desires for political and spiritual power falling into the wrong hands. See, the last thing your enemy wants is for the church to function the way God intended the church to function, as we find here in Ephesians chapter 4. So his attack is to minimize key roles in high places. It is really a spiritual strategy to short-circuit God's power. That's how important it is to get a real pastor in here who will function the way Jesus said he could function. The prophet Zechariah said these words. You've heard them, I'm sure. If you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. The enemy of your soul and mine knows this. You strike the shepherd, the sheep are going to scatter. And so what does the enemy do? He goes after the top guy to scatter the sheep. If the devil can minimize or marginalize or simply disqualify the true gift of pastor to the local church, then the body will remain unequipped to do the work of the ministry. And to edify the body of Christ. And guess what? I've been around in some very traditional churches, as I've mentioned, and I tell you what, they are, they are dying on the vine with their treading water. Those that are managing to hold on to anything that means anything in, from, from God's word, they're barely making it because there are no shepherds that are in the pulpit. Now, I know this. We have all sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Every one of us in here is a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. It's true. We're all sinners. We all need great grace. Don't we? Moment to moment grace. And the mercy of God. We need that. I need that. So if you are a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a lay person who have sinned. The Bible makes no distinction, by the way, between leadership and laity in terms of sin. It's a problem. It should be dealt with, but guess what? Forgiveness should be our mandate unconditionally. Forgiveness should be our mandate unconditionally. Peter was asking that question, Lord, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? No, no, just multiply it out, man. Just keep forgiving. Just knee jerk. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Why? Because your Savior and mine forgave you, forgave me. And I tell you what, I'm a big old sinner, and God forgave me. So forgiveness should be our mandate unconditionally. 
Reconciliation should be our process conditionally. Reconciliation should be our process conditionally. These two things may lead to restoration, if possible. Depending on the nature of the sin, the duration of cover-up, if there is, or any variables that are in there, those are all conditions that will determine that. Now, please understand something. The Apostle Paul, when he was dealing with a sexual sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he, there was no, you've got to read that chapter. There was no confusion there. He said, immediately separate from the whole, that one lump. Separate it and deal with it. Let the process work out. If it, and if you can restore this person, restore this person. But if you can't, I'll tell you what, in that case, they didn't restore him. He, there was a grievous sin. It wasn't even a leader, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Trust is a fragile commodity. When it is broken, it must be dealt with, not ignored. A common mistake by well-meaning people is when, we, when an offense is discovered, one might just look the other way. I understand. Let someone accuse them of being rigid or hard or, or offending to the offender. But the pendulum can swing the other way by people who want to speed up the recovery and cheapen the experience of what it means when a leader becomes ensnared in grievous sin. You see, there's an experience there that everyone can learn. We don't want to speed it up. We want to slow it down and examine it and look at it in every way and then consider ourselves. That's the way we're supposed to deal with sin in the church. Now, returning to a better way, flipping the, the dial here, Sacrifice begins with the pastor. Headship in the church does not mean the pastor gets his way first. And no one else gets their way. As defined by Christ, it means he gets to be servant first. It means he gets to love first. The whole thing about being a leader in the church is that we get to be like Jesus first. And what did he do? He died. So if there's going to be any modeling of death, it, it comes first from the pastor. Jesus said to the mother of Zebedee, who came to him and said, hey, can you make my two sons leaders in the church? Can you kind of put them on the right and the left? Can, you know, she's kind of politicking for her sons. And Jesus responded, do you not know what you're asking? You don't even understand what you're saying. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? That cup was a cup of true leadership, wasn't it? Because he died. Are you able to do that? Many are called to, but only few are actually chosen to do it. That's why there's not too many pastors around. It's a tough road. He went on to say, those who would be great among you must be your servant. Matthew 20. Must be your servant. You see, there is a greatness that comes from leadership. Yes, there is, no doubt. We have great leaders. There's, we have great leaders now. We had great leaders in the Reformation. There are great leaders all through history. I tell you what, King David was a great leader, but Saul wasn't, right? Moses was a great leader, but how about Korah? Not so much. The prophet Elijah was great, but how about King Ahab? Not so much. Greatness begins with one's ability to love others, measured out in a genuine willingness to sacrifice first. 
this is what it makes great leadership in the kingdom of God in my view. Now, this is a tough subject. Wow. But we're asking God, send us a man. Send us someone. Everyone knows that in order to win an NBA championship, anybody play, pay any attention to NBA basketball? Now, you know that <laughs> you know that in order to win an NBA championship, you've got to have a couple of things. Number one, you have to have a winning combination of people. Winning combination of people who do not hog the ball, right? You got to have that. They share the ball. They create opportunities on the floor for each other. That's a winning combination. No one person gets the glory, but all share in the win together. That's leadership, whether it's a basketball team, whether it's a church leadership, whatever it is. We all share together, and Christ gets the glory. So in the context of church leadership, there is a mutual submission, one to the other, in the leadership first, in the leadership first, much like a marriage bond between a husband and a wife found in the Apostle Paul's teachings. My first pastor used to say to me, uh, husbands, submit to your wife's need. Wives, submit to your husband's lead. What? What are my wife's needs? I don't know anything about that. My, what, husbands, do you know, can you list your wife's needs? We're talking about submitting to each other. She might need financial stability, needs you to make some money, make sure the lights aren't going to go out, right? Anybody can identify? I can. She might need you to be emotionally engaged, right? Tracking in the family. That's important to many women. And that's a need she might have. I'm sure she does. And it's your job to find out what that need is and to meet it. She needs me to not allow the gas tank to go on E. Yeah. You know, what, what happens is this. Back when we had the Sabbath, this is before she got her new car the other day. But she'd jump in my car to go do something because the other car's not that reliable. She's halfway down the highway, and that thing's on bone dry E, right? I, it's a bad habit I've had. I, I figure I've got a few more. I can go a few more miles here, and then I'll pull over and get some gas. Bad habit. So she says to me, hey, it is my need that you put some gas in this car because I might get stuck on the side of the road if that makes me feel uncomfortable and it doesn't make me feel very good about you, right? It's true. So I said, okay, okay, I'll do that, okay, I'll do that. And I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And, and this went on for a while until one day, I don't know what it, what it was, but one day a light went off in my head. Oh, that's important to her. I'm going to submit to this. And I'm going to really make an effort to make sure there's gas in the car, at least a quarter of a tank, at least. So that if she has to jump in the car, that she's going to be safe to get where she's going most likely, unless she's going on a trip or something, right? That's meeting her needs. That kind of flowing together needs to be in the leadership of the church. So what is the husband's lead? What is the husband's lead? What is he supposed to be doing? He's to lead his family spiritually. It should be his idea to come to church more than everybody else's. Yeah. He's to lead his wife, right? He's supposed to have his hand on the thermostat, the spiritual thermostat of his family in terms of engagement, in terms of caring for them. If there's a family fight, he needs to be right in the middle of it, not in the back room watching TV. Uh-oh. Yeah. No, the, 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 the husband's role is to lead, to set the tone of what the family is supposed to be. And to, and to work it the way God wants it to be worked. 
One wife said, I can't follow a parked car. He's not going anywhere. All right. Well, okay. You know, well, we'll shake him a little bit. Hey, guy, God has called you to lead and to lead correctly. Find out what her needs are. Find out the needs of the family. And I tell you, it's not easy because the family got a whole bunch of needs. Wow. That's a, that's a full-time job. And I tell you, I am not the best. At, there are a lot of people a lot better than I am at that. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Peter said this. All of you, I love this. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Don't you just love that? Clothe yourself with humility. Treat that person that that they're better than you. Do it often. This is something that needs to be in church government, in church leadership. When this happens in the church, it is like the sweet aroma of God's cloud of glory. A divine partnership of cooperation and movement toward the promised land. Oh, it's, it's rich and it's full. I've, I've been in a few churches where the leadership is like the, that NBA team. They just, they gel. They know each other's thoughts. They, they're, they're covering each other's back. They're transparent with each other. I'm a sinner. You know, the Bible says confess your faults one to the other. Confess them. Not, not that you have to go over details of your sins. Say, this is my weakness, ABC. Tell, those, tell that other person. Let them know who you are. It's a healing process. If we don't understand this concept, all that is left is politicking and, man, and manipulation by people who want to lord it over the, the congregation and the flock. That's all that's left. So the best contrast between these two dynamics this morning is found in the life of King Saul and David. I mentioned Saul and David Well, if you know the story in 1 Samuel, don't turn there. God didn't want to give Israel a king. He wanted to be their king. But the people of God were crying out, we want a king like all the Gentiles. We want a king. We want a king. And so finally, the Lord relented. He says, I'll tell you what, fine. I'll give you a king. Samuel, go and pick their king. And Samuel picked Saul. So... There's a contrast between Saul and David. David was the second king. Saul was the very first king. May I suggest to you that Saul represents the flesh. David represents life in the spirit. Saul represented the old order of things. David represented the spontaneity of the spirit. Saul was a man after appearance and saving face. David was transparent and he was humble. Saul exalted self, David humbled himself. Saul postured his authority, but had no substance. David had substance, but refused to posture his authority. Saul obeyed partially, David was a man after God's heart. Both Saul and David were sinners, but Saul concealed his sin. David cried out over his sin. There is a Saul in every one of us, actually. That must be put to death. You see, before David can rule the nation of Israel fully, Saul had to die. Before you and I can rule and reign the way Christ wants us to rule and reign, our Saul needs to die. And our David needs to be enthroned to his rightful position. Before any shepherd can properly lead sheep 
his Saul, his self-will, his self-promotion, his self-ambition, all must die before anything will happen in that church. Guaranteed. So in closing, turn with me to Psalms 23. Everyone's familiar with Psalms 23. It's a great passage of scripture. Um, it's a template for every pastor, for every leader, for every Christian. It's a template of how to walk the Christian walk. I'm going to read through it. There's only six verses of scripture, and then I'm going to highlight the first four. Everybody there. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over, overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now this is David's psalm. He was that shepherd. The first thing I notice here is the fact that the sheep take ownership of the shepherd. Now, in the same way that this good shepherd is speaking of Christ, this same psalm can represent the local pastor as well. In other words, the principles are still there, whether it's a local pastor or the universal pastor. It doesn't really matter. And so the first thing I see is that the sheep take ownership of the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In other words, I shall not be in want because of the shepherd. That's the idea there. Jesus is your good shepherd. No one can replace him, nor no one should. It's a good connection. But the local shepherd can also be your shepherd if that's your custom. Now, in, in some churches, that concept is not taught or cultivated in any way. He's just Bubba, Bubba Jim over here, you know, Billy Bob that that preaches on Sunday, and there's not the understanding that he's the gift that was sent to you. That understanding is in, not really in a lot of churches. If we receive him by faith as the gift, then we have to understand that in a sense, only in one sense, he is that source that we go to. Now, he himself is just a man, understood. As long as he follows Christ, we can follow him is the idea. Once he stops following Christ, oh, we got to find somebody else because this guy's not following Christ, right? So there's an ownership of it. I also know that saying such a thing in the aftermath of this church, that it, I understand that it, it's difficult when we, we're talking about pastors. Uh, you, you're saying that we should receive him by faith as a gift and that we should follow his lead as a real pastor. Don't you understand? Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I understand that. But according to our Ephesians 4 passage, the local pastor, he is that gift that God so wants to give this church and to give you. By design, God wants to place that person in your sphere to touch your life with whatever it is that God has put on him. The second thing is, is found in verse 1. The good shepherd is to be a spiritual provider. The local shepherd's job, his description, is to get the flock to a place in God where they can say, I shall not be in want. I tell you, my pastor, he's some, he preaches some stuff. He makes a big old bowl of chili for us every Sunday. He, he's got that, 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 that contain, he's got that big bowl, and he's making a stew for us. 
and it's so delicious. He's got tenderized meat and potatoes and carrots, and he's put onions in there, and he's got gravy, and he's been stirring it around. Oh, the aroma. What is he doing? He's making a meal for us. What is that meal? The meal is the Word of God. And so the pastor's job is to provide the sheep with nutrition, a spiritual meal. You have to feel, oh, I'm full after that. I'm going to go home and chew on that and think about it and maybe practice it, right? That's what he's supposed to do. So the first mark of the shepherd is he's to graze the sheep. Look at verse 2 again. He makes me lie down in green pastures. We are actually in closing here. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Sheep love to lie down in green pastures. Sheep love to eat God's rich, fresh word. To lie down implies a resting in God's word. In other words, the sheep are satisfied because the, 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 the shepherd is giving a good feeding. The shepherd's job is to get to, to you to a place where you rest in the things of God. Now, you must know, however, that goats, in contrast, do not like to lie down. In green pastures, they don't like to lie down or anything. Now, let me say this, that when I say goats, I'm not talking necessarily about unsaved people. I'm talking about unsanctified people. I'm talking about people that are not really disciples in Christ, but they are in Christ, and they kind of act just like the goats anyway. Maybe they're goats, and they don't like to hear the words of God. It kind of bothers them a little bit. He's preaching out of the Bible again. Why do we always have to be talking about the Bible? Anybody ever met anybody like that? Am I the only one? Oh, I have got stories to tell you. There are believers who simply hate to eat the word of God. How can that be? Because they've been brainwashed. I don't know why. But there has to be a hungering in the body for the scriptures at some level and for it to be met. You see, a sheep, they'll show up on the front row. They've got a pen. They've got a pad. They're taking notes. They're going to go home and think about it. They come up afterwards and say, can you please just tell me one more time what you meant when you used that verse right there? See, they're very intrigued with what the scriptures have to say. That's a sheep. That's a sheep. Goats are, eh, I don't care what he says. It's nice. Well, I'll go home. No, I'm, I'm telling you that there's, there's, two, there's two kind of people in the body of Christ, sheep and goats. They say, well, are you trying to say that I'm a goat? No, I'm, I'm not. There's no accusations for anybody. I look at myself first. Am I a goat sometimes? Do I always want to hear the scriptures? No, no, I don't. So the job of the local pastor is to graze the flock in the lush and abundant fields of God's word. Secondly, the shepherd is to guide the sheep. Look with me at the tail end of verse 2. He's to guide the sheep. Not only graze the sheep, to guide the sheep. We'll end on this point. Actually, one more after that. Look at verse 2. He keeps preaching. He leads me beside still waters. The chief shepherd leads us beside still waters. The local shepherd is also supposed to lead you beside still waters. You see, a good shepherd will lead or guide his flock into the still waters of God's spirit, I would suggest. He knows that the green pasture of the word is not enough. You remember, eat the manna, drink from the rock, follow the cloud. What happens if you eat the manna and you skip the rock? You're dry. You can't even follow the cloud because... Your life is dry. It's important for the pastor, for the shepherd, to emphasize the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. It is well known that sheep will drink water if it is quiet water. 
A sheep will go into quiet water and they will drink and they will get nourished. Not a goat. Not a goat. The goats are the opposite. They don't like any water. And they don't want to follow anybody to do it. They will eat the bark off of a tree before they will follow after the shepherd. So the shepherd has to get the staff out, right? That's another story. It's the pastor's job to lead his flock into the fresh waters of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know pastors, they don't like talking about the Holy Spirit very much. They just get it right out of their seminary textbook, and then they let it go after that. And I'm telling you, I don't know about you, but I need more than that. I need to know that the Spirit of God wants to touch my life. I need to know that the Spirit of God wants to give me comfort and rest. I need to actually experience that comfort and rest. Not a theory, not something out of a textbook. I want God to rain down on me. When we play these tender songs, Spirit of the living God, I want to be able to say, okay, Lord, refresh me. Wash me. I need you. And that last hymn, I, I love that hymn. I know it's old. I need you. Oh, I need you. I need you. I need you, God. I can't live without him. You can't live without him. You need him. I don't think I need him that much. Yeah, you do. You need him a lot. The result of a well-fed flock of both green pastures and God's word and the still waters is found in verse 3. Just the first part of it. He restores my soul. The chief shepherd restores, only the chief shepherd. The local shepherd is that conduit that restores your soul and leads me in paths of righteousness. You see, a steady diet of word and spirit can only do one thing, restore your life, brings refreshment, brings new perspective. There's a joy, there's a, there's a, you got a little skip in your walk. Remember when you were happy? You know, if, I remember when I was young, I think the, the times that I was most happiest was when I was a kid. Because I didn't know anything about anything. I just knew my parents loved me and then that was good enough. And I went out and played. It was just another time. But see, I'm saying that he can restore your life, your soul. Give you something that you've never had before. As long as the word and the spirit together, the manna and the drinking from the rock and following the cloud, as long as that process is working, then you, you arrive at a place called wholeness. Wholeness. We need wholeness. Wellness of mind. Wellness of heart. We need that. He restores my soul, but then he leads me. So the, he graces the sheep. He guides the sheep. Finally, in real closing, he guards the sheep. Look at verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, comfort me. You're with me. I do not fear evil. The only person that can say I do not fear evil is someone who's whole. Someone who has, their, their soul is restored. They look at evil in a di from a different perspective than people who are not whole. People who are not whole look at evil, they want to run the other way. But when you get whole, when you get refreshed in your soul, you look at evil and say, I will not fear evil. Why? Because of you, God. You see, there's such a connection. There's such a connection that I'm not afraid of anything because you're with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Now, obviously, only the Lord can be with you everywhere. Again, reiterating. 
The local pastor has his limitations, doesn't he? He's not supposed to be everywhere. If the local pastor is everywhere, he's got his binoculars out, and he's looking at your life, run, because that ain't right. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? That's not what I'm talking about. There's a sense of security when, you're, when you walk through the difficult times. Things begin to make sense because the Lord is with you. His job is also to protect you from false doctrine. In a sense, to guard you from the wolf. That's the local pastor's job as well. So he kind of studies up. Now, I'll tell you what, the elders, they're supposed to keep sharp too. They're supposed to know the word of God. And they too can be in that, in that role to guard. It's the job of the, the shepherd and the, the elders are like the watchdogs that, that watch the parameters. The watchdogs, they walk the parameters of the, of the sheep pen, looking for the sheep. They're in conjunction or in connection with the shepherd to guard everything that is around for false doctrine. So we've got churches in Cincinnati, they, they've drifted into false doctrine. I've experienced some of that. And, and the, you know, the hired gun that's out there to preach the sermon he, I, I'm just telling you, he's a coward because the things he preaches, he's not guarding the sheep at all, and it's sad. So our prayer needs to be, Lord, send us your choice. Send us your gift, and by faith, we receive him because he's going to be a perfect fit. He's the perfect person for us that will speak into our life. And since you make the best choices, I won't pay as much attention to the resume and the seminary degree and all those things. Those are nice. But I want to be discerning more than those things so that we can have a gift and enjoy that gift. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? I, I was blessed to be under some real strong pastors. Not all of them, but I've been under some strong pastors, truly humble men of God. They will give you the shirt off their back. They will love you when you're not very lovable. And I was blessed. But I know that not everyone was. And I know that other, some people have a different experience of, of the position of pastor. And to get through it. God will help you get through it and help you transition to a pastor that will sacrifice for you, a pastor that will have your back. He'll be praying for you in your midnight hour. He'll be there with you. Why? Because he's watching the chief shepherd. And the chief shepherd is always with you. He will never leave you. Amen? Let's stand together. We'll close in some prayer. Then we'll all go home. Father, we thank you that you are the gift giver. And you see our need. Lord, we ask that you will just do what you do to meet the needs of your sheep here today. Father, that out of your benevolence and out of your great wisdom, you will present your choice as this church goes forward. Lord, that this work that is here, the investment that is here, will go on and be relevant in the culture and in the community for your honor and for your glory. This is what we ask. We pray in the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. Everyone said amen. God bless you guys. Hug a few necks before you leave here today.